After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hey everyone, it's Raghu. I'm back with Mind Rolling and I'm here with Matthew Fox, who many, many, many of you will know. Matthew, welcome to Mind Rolling. Thank you. Good to be with you, Raghu. So, uh, Matthew has uh, a new book, Essential Writings in Cre- on Creation Spirituality. And we're going to, um, th- there are concepts here that, although I have heard of them, I have not delved delved into them until this book so i'm, I'm kind of happy because i've discovered new discovery is really very good very great keeps us young doesn't yes, it? yes yeah <laughs> yeah yeah uh but um now i mean for those of you uh, matthew i'm mean, geez matthew maybe what 39 books later or something i mean <laughs> you have uh been busy in your life certainly as an author and Matthew, just briefly, is a theologian and activist who was expelled from the Catholic Church after many, many years, 34 years, by uh, Cardinal uh, Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict. His mistake was reviving creation spirituality, and that's we're going to talk a lot about that here today. And uh, But before anything, and I just said to Matthew before I, uh, we got on, I said, well, we have this wonderful, wonderful material of you and Ramdas from uh, it's back in the day before his stroke. Before his stroke. And yes. Matthew said, oh, I've never seen that. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I remember the event well. I remember he was praying his beads uh, while I was talking. I'm not sure if that was to keep bad spirits away or to stay in the room. No, sure. no, he, he was but a centering remember, device. That's what I most remember, and that we had good exchange, and, and um, you know, I I enjoyed a lot. I, I respect the man a lot, and even before his stroke, and then afterwards, of course, I respect very much how he, he made a lemonade out of that particular mm-hmm. lemon yeah. and taught us a lot of in that particular very special era of his life as well. So mm. uh, I have a lot of respect for, for uh, Ram Das, but mm. um, I'm, I want to see your, you want your to see uh, the, copy the media. of our interaction because I remember the occasion very much. I think it was in Atlanta. Uh-huh. And, um, yeah, tell I, me about it, what you remember. I don't remember what we talked about, but it must have been fun. <laughs> getting fist fights. I'm, sh- yeah. <laughs> I'm sure compassion was there, if I remember <laughs> that was part of the subject matter. So, uh, Matthew, can you just tell us a little bit of uh, how you came 
to realize that there was, and this is my standard uh, question for people who I'm just meeting, that there, to realize there is a path to freedom, to the truth, on the most basic level, that um, we do not have to stay subject to the story we tell ourselves, nor the thoughts that we believe in. How did that come to you as a, a very young person, child even, in, into uh, your adult years? Well, um, I grew up in Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin. Ah. And um, back then, before climate change was so ferocious, uh, Wisconsin had four very distinct seasons. And I remember loving the snow and loving the fall and the autumn and loving spring and loving summer. So, and just being close to the earth, Madison has five lakes within the city limits. And there's a lot of swimming and canoeing and boating and all that, and a lot of sports and a lot of outdoors. And uh, I grew up in a, fa a big family of seven kids. And um, oh, really? my father had been a football coach in Wisconsin. So both he and my mother were quite athletic. So anyway, um, I grew up loving nature. And also I had dreams as a child, Native American dreams, which really? were very strong to me. Hmm. And the Native American tradition has been very important for me in my adult years and meeting some wonderful uh, uh, Lakota teachers and, and Seneca teachers and very important to me. So anyway, a big moment, two big moments when I was a kid, in addition to the general love of nature I spoke of was um, I got polio when I was 12 and oh, really? oh. they couldn't tell me if I'd ever walk again. So um, as it turned out, I, I was in the hospital for many months, but I did walk again and I played sports again, but with more detachment than my older brothers who'd been all state football and all this. And my father, I kind of left in a way I left my father at 12 because hmm. I, I, I was looking for another version of manhood because I was like, well, I'm not going to be a football player. Am I like my, everyone else seems to be in this family. So um, I met a very contemplative um, uh, Dominican brother who, who later became a Trappist monk. He would visit me in the hospital frequently. And he, he was so contemplative, and this is all new to me. You know, it was just a different mm. energy. And, and that moved me very much. And then um, when I did get my legs back, I remember saying to the universe, I'm never going to take my legs for granted again. Mm. And I think that's a very mystical statement, um, not to take for granted. I think that's why when we meditate, we often follow the breath, not to take breath for granted. I mean, you know, it's pretty basic, but so yeah. easy to take for granted. Yeah. As I tell people, if you're there when a child is born and they take their first breath, that's pretty darn special. And when you're there, when someone dies and they take their last breath, that's pretty darn special. But in between all these breaths, we can easily take for granted. So that was one big experience uh, for me, for sure. And another was um, when I was 15 or so during the summer break, I read Tolstoy's War and Peace. And I told a friend, it blew my soul wide open which it did. And I wanted to explore what happened to me. Now, I have words for that today. It's called mystical experience. But back then, all I knew was it blew my soul wide open. And so I became very drawn to thinking about um, joining the Dominican order, uh, who were my parish priests, actually, 
But I, I was I went to a public high school and my best friends were Protestant or Jewish or agnostic. So we had these wonderful debates about religion and philosophy. And I'd go to my parish priest and I'd get ammunition, you know, like G.K. Chesterton or Thomas Aquinas. So I'd read this stuff. And I love that intellectual side to to religion. That religion wasn't just, as you said, just mouthing uh, doctrines or beliefs. So to make a long story short, I joined the Dominicans after high school. Well, a couple of years after high school. And, um, and uh, what did I dad loved, think about I loved that? The, the, the monastic practices, yeah. the meditation, um, at the, the chanting, which is the rosary, which is a yeah. uh, uh, really a chant. What and, did your um, father think of that? Oh, he, 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 he loved it. Because he loved that you joined the, uh, the order. Catholic. Yeah. He was an Irish Catholic. My mother was not, <laughs> uh, but she, she became a Catholic, but she never, what should I say, um, surrendered to, to an ecclesial um, jurisdiction, you might say. She mm. was more spiritual than religious. Mm. And, um, but make a long story short, I joined the Dominicans. I loved the training and, and all this. And then, um, in the early 60s in my training, I said, look, my generation is going to be less interested in religion and more interested in spirituality. Because I was having a lot of mystical experiences. In fact, I spent a summer in a hermitage to, to deal with all that. But I wasn't getting any, any good direction from the priests who I approached about this. One of them finally said, the experiences you're having, none of us have. So you I know. <laughs> so anyway... I went to the head of the theology school and I said, look, um, send someone on for a doctorate in spirituality because that's what my generation is interested in. And that's the experiential side of religion. Mm. And then said, and what, a year later, they came, good news. You can go to Europe and get a degree in spirituality. Oh, great. I said, where'd I go? They said, go to Spain. Spain, I said, we don't need more 16th century Spanish spirituality. Well, then go to Rome. Rome, I said, for spirituality. Are you kidding me? <laughs> well, wise guy, where do you want to go? I said, I don't know, but I'm not going to Spain or Rome. Let me write Thomas Merton, you know, the Catholic monk. Yeah. So I did. And they thought I was crazy writing Thomas Merton. But four days later, I got a full page letter saying, go to Paris. the Institute From him? From him. Oh, yeah. Oh, and he wow. said a lot of things in it. I, I wrote a book on him recently, and I reproduced that letter of his. Oh, really? Oh, Yeah. And he I sent me a whole that. package of documents, too. He said, someday you may be interested in these. These are unpublished uh, articles and my notes that I taught the novices with and all this stuff. And then he died six months later. So I was interested in these things. But anyway, um, um, so... Hmm. I went to him and said, I got to go to Paris. And Merton says, oh, no, we can't send him to France. We never sent anyone to France who came home again, he said. And so we had a standoff for a couple of months, hitting him over the head with this letter from Merton. And finally, they relented and said, OK, go to Paris. And it was in Paris that I uh, discovered my my mentor, if you will, Pierre Chenu, a wonderful 75-year-old uh, Dominican from France, who was very influential in the Vatican Council and had been silenced for 12 years by Pope Pius XII because uh, he'd worked with the Marxists in France uh, after the war and with the unions. And um, he's the one who named the creation spiritual tradition for me. Really? Uh, and I'll never forget. Hmm. It was like Paul falling off his horse. I'll never forget that in class. He said there are these two streams in Christianity. One is the fall redemption, begins with the fall, and it's about redemption. The other begins with creation. 
and it's very different. So my book, Original Blessing, um, kind of blew the roof off the Vatican because they're, I learned they're very invested in original sin. And, uh, <laughs> but I think if you look at the universe, you know, sin is, came 13.8 billion years after the universe was doing its thing. So I think there was a lot of blessing before sin showed up. And that's humans. We, 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 we're about, we bring on sin. But if it begins with sin, they're so anthropocentric. But Pope Francis calls it narcissism, which is what it is. It's species narcissism. So mm-hmm. it begin with the goodness of the world, where you're never going to find your way out of, out of our troubles. And um, actually, that's how the Bible begins. I, I swear, look at chapter 1 of Genesis. There's not a word of sin or evil mentioned in it. It's all about goodness, the goodness of the sun and the goodness of the moon, the goodness of the animals and plants. And at the end, humans come on board, and still it says, this is very good. And the Hebrew would word there for good can also be translated beautiful. It's very beautiful. And that's that's what I mean by original blessing, that we we have come into a world that is beautiful. Humans haven't always made it beautiful. That's a problem. But um, we got to begin with, with uh, the, the strength and the thing we have going for us, which is the beauty of the world. Yeah. Well, the, and the Buddhists call it basic goodness. Beautiful, basic goodness. Right. Thomas basic Aquinas, 13th century, called that original goodness, which uh-huh. is a beautiful phrase. Yeah. But I got condemned for, condemned for it in the 20th century. Um, I don't think the those two papacies that ran for 34 years, JP2 and Benedict, uh, I don't think they knew their tradition very well. I think mm. they were busy about other things, including destroying liberation theology in South America and teaming up with the CIA to do it. Uh, I think there that's a whole other story. It sounds like it, it is another story, but it's related. You know, all stories do come together. At the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's a little summary. It's pretty mm. little, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, so creation spirituality, which is life affirming, and uh, complete. I mean, you even have a chart in this book: fall, redemption versus creation-centered spirituality. Mm. And you look through this, you go, yeah, right. Mortification, control of passions, passion is a curse, God is patriarchal. I mean, it's everything that we are living moment to moment. There's Mm -hmm. not one of us that deep down doesn't have, which is what we're we're trying to retell that story and get those habitual patterns into a uh, more aligned with our basic goodness rather than not. But everyone, yeah. We're sinners, and we are going to get our due one of these days. And oh, you know, just, re- yeah. you know, that's there. And and that's, you know, I mean, I come from Jewish tradition. Mm. Nothing different going on there, mm. you know. Uh, and I don't know if you know this or if, if Ramdas told you back then. But when we went, he went in the second time, so we a bunch of us went along with him. Not along with him, but met up with him there. Anyhow... One of the first things that our guru said, Neem Karoli Bab, was there's only one thing going on. In, in Hindi, it was subect, all one. So Hanuman and Christ are one. Like mm-hmm. We didn't know, what, monkey? <laughs> <laughs> number one. Number two, Christ could have been the same as the monkey in terms of we had no idea because we were, many of us were Jewish. Mm-hmm. And so this, this whole thing got turned around 
in a in a beautiful way for us mm-hmm. as kids. We were in our early twenties to be able to understand, mm-hmm. you know, something of the truth. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's this endemic thing of the way that we actually talk to ourselves around we are sinners and we are going to get our comeuppance. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, talk a little bit about uh, creation spirituality, I think. Well, as, as you're pointing out, it is kind of the opposite, the mere opposite of fundamentalism. Yeah. Because it's not patriarchal. And um, uh, wisdom, as you know, in, in Hebrew, is feminine. And... Um, uh, scholars today agree that Jesus, stroke of Jesus, came from the wisdom tradition of Israel. And the wisdom tradition is about finding God in nature. And that's why it's very ecumenical that, I mean, the Queen of Sheba was not Jewish <laughs> and uh, she didn't know the Bible, but she's a key figure in, in Jewish wisdom storytelling mm-hmm. and so forth. And um, so the, the, the story is, you know, that many uh, scholars say that in Jesus' village, he was considered illegitimate. And so he wasn't allowed in the synagogue on the Sabbath. So while others went to the synagogue to pray, he went into nature to pray. And it shows in, in his parables, they're all about nature. You know, the rain that falls on the just and the unjust, and and I mean, and the leaven that rises in the in the dough. And, and you know, he's just a keen observer mm. of things much bigger than religious dogmas <laughs> of life and of being. And, um, and, it, and yet he comes to that that high point, I think, of uh, both Jewish and Eastern spirituality, which is compassion. So Luke 6, be you compassionate, created in heaven is compassionate. Well, the Dalai Lama, you can do it with our religion, but you can't do it with compassion. Compassion is my religion and so forth. Yeah. Kindness. And, yes. What's that? And kindness. And kindness, yeah. yeah. And it's working out of the experience of oneness, you see, the interdependence. Um, in fact, Thomas Merton said that two hours, three hours before he died. And, uh, you know, I think he was martyred. There's a lot of proof for that. But um, mm-hmm. in his last speech, he said, um, compassion is a keen awareness of the interdependence of all living things that are all part of one another, all involved in one another. And I think that's how... Mm-hmm. That's that's a translation of oneness into human um, behavior, and so like Meister Eckhart, one of my very favorite mystics, 14th yeah. century, also condemned by the Pope. <laughs> yeah, after he died, a Dominican, that guy was. He says that um, uh, uh, what happens to another, whether it be a joy or a sap or a sorrow, happens to me. Hmm. So that, that's a wonderful definition of compassion. That it's not just carrying the burdens of one another and trying to relieve the suffering and the injustice. That's an important part. But it's also celebrating together. We share joy as well as grief. And both those depths are what make us human. Yeah. And every religion worthy of itself is, is stirring those things up and has practices to bring us through the grief and and to receive the joy. Yeah. Well, and, you know, uh, that, sorry, but it just reminds me of the story of uh, Buddha's disciple Ananda coming to him and saying, oh boy, the third refuge is really the, the one, right? You know, not in colloquial terms like that, but uh, which is sangha, community, satsang. 
And he said, basically, he said, that's a wild understatement. It is uh-huh. everything. It is the whole of... Uh-huh. The whole enchilada. Enchilada, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, and, you know, and that's something that we got when we went to India and we were introduced in a way to that kind of family community. Mm-hmm. I mean, it started with when Ramdas first went there and he was told to go stay at uh, one of the devotees' houses who took him in. He had no understanding what an Indian family was right. and the way, the graciousness and the openness and how you were considered immediately part of the family. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was telling someone today, if you even ask for anything, it's you might as well have slapped them in the face. Mm-hmm. You need to demand, bring, can, I want that tea, or because then they feel like you're part of the family. Would you ever say to your mother, "Mom, may I please have it?" You know, <laughs> and and just those simple kinds of things. Mm. And and the, yeah, that's something that uh, I'm really happy that we seem to have carried back uh, to the West, starting with Ramdas, yeah, who shared something that he was told not to share. Mm. You know, and I, I once asked him, Matthew, a couple of years ago before he died. I said, you know, you you came back to America and you you were told, do not mention me in America by the guru, by Nimkaroli Baba. And that's all you did. <laughs> and he said, I, you know, I I had this jewel and how could I not share it? You know, mm. you see, the impulse was so strong in him. And that really was is reflected. That's the greatest reflection of his life. He could do nothing but... He, he shared everything, his own stuff, his honesty, you know, all of it. Anyhow, not to make this a tribute around Ramdas, but but the idea of, of community and that kind of sharing, you know. Did I, he get, ever get negative feedback from his guru for making him public? No, he knew. No, he knew it was going to happen. He knew. <laughs> it was just a play, Lila. Just play, yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So, um, talking about stories, so Thomas Berry, uh, who you have uh, mentioned in the book, um, I think it's it, it, to publish the universe story, a history of the cosmos, right? Mm-hmm. So, I, oh, Brian Swim, Swim, and or Swimmy and Thomas Berry published this together. But I just love this thing you quoted. I, I'm imagine it is from Thomas Berry. If you don't mind, I'll just read it. Uh, now, in our modern scientific age, in a matter never known before, we have created our own sacred story, the epic of evolution, telling us from empirical observation and critical analysis how the universe came to be the sequence of its transformation down through some billions of years, how our solar system came into being and how the earth took shape and brought us into existence. This is our sacred story. And what this did was remind me how, uh, like what you have done around creation spirituality is creating a new story which needs to take hold. Mm. And this, this passage about, you know, how science is informing us in a way that's very uh, enlightening. Mm. And, of course, in another way, it's short of the mark. Mm. Um, and uh, it's just um, our new, you mentioned our new collective sacred story, one that permeates the globe at the time. At this time, it's truly universal and, and one that derives from science. 
So uh, I just love the idea that we are creating. It reminds me that we are creating a new paradigm around what the truth is, how it's reflected in our world, in our human world. Uh, the the idea of the interconnectivity of all things. And the more we see that because of what's happened with the internet, what's happened with, now it's even going much further into virtual reality and so on. So yeah, the creation of, of a new story because the ones that we've told ourselves like aren't very interesting anymore. <laughs> yeah, and they're, they're, not, they're not cutting the mustard, you know, I mean, on the one hand, we can see the world as this sacred um, unfolding. It's going on for 13.8 billion years, beginning smaller than a zygote. And now um, uh, we're counting two trillion galaxies, each with hundreds of billions of stars. So that's the, the awe of it all. And that's a wonderful place to start with awe, because from awe comes reverence and gratitude. Mm. But... Um, as you say, um, how well are we dealing with evil? Uh, look at what's going on in the Ukraine now. Um, and, and with the, the compulsion to create war, when the, the battle we should be fighting, well, there are two battles we should be fighting. One is, of course, that inner jihad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah the inner jihad, yeah. But, but the, the other one is, of course, with climate change. I mean, why mm. can't this bring us together? I mean, mm. instead, we're back to 19th century imperial wars, literally, at this moment. And uh, you, uh, Russia against Ukraine. And um, whereas we should be stepping back from all these agendas of imperialism and empire building that have not served the earth well, because we have, according to science, seven years left to really change our ways. If the earth as we need it <laughs> is going to survive, if we're going to survive, therefore, I mean, we are facing extinction. And it's like, I think of Nero playing the fiddle while Rome burned, you know, the planet is burning. And all our institutions, this isn't just a religious problem, it's, it's education. And therefore, it's politics and economics and everything. The human race is is playing a fiddle while and shooting now we're back to shooting missiles at each other too. It's it's really uh, unbearable. I mean, I, I think I'm hoping that this war that for the first time is being televised live and is on young people's social media watches and everything else, mm -hmm. then maybe this will wake us up and say, maybe this isn't so good an idea. Maybe we could step back. And all nations and all ideologies and all religions could address this one basic issue, which is the survival of Mother Earth. But to do that, we have to care about the mother. We have to care about Mother Earth. We have to give up our patriarchal exactly. privilege and mindset. And this is where mysticism comes in. And, and you know, Dorothy Sola is a liberation theologian, deceased now, but she says that mysticism is the antidote is to patriarchy because it deconstructs hierarchical thinking and puts us back into a web, an interconnected web with nature. And, and I would say, yes, with the sacredness of nature. And it's recovering that sacredness, I think, that is key and stepping off of our ladders and uh, out of the patriarchal reptilian brain that says, I win, you lose, you know? It's the mammal brain of compassion that needs to 
assert itself at this time, but it can't do it until the patriarchal uh, reptilian brain chills out some. That's where meditation comes in. Mm. I think that's how we calm the reptilian brain. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what you said in the very beginning, of course, we need to attend to the jihad inside ourselves. To me, very that's very much what needs to happen alongside of whatever social action one can do, alongside of whatever service one can do. If and this is a extremely important because I mean, all of us can recognize it so easily that polarization that's inside us, the immediate knee jerk reactions to um, to what our projections are about whatever is is, uh, is a feel good or a feel bad and we're so caught up in, in that clinging yeah. and to attend to that and yes it, it meditation it's chanting it's it's uh, uh, and I know how important indigenous uh, life is to you and and I I'm totally you know we're trying to do more uh, with the podcast network in the in mm-hmm and uh, just offer more of that wisdom, which is so important to connecting us back in to ourselves and, and to nature. Yeah, so. Exactly. You know, you, you talk, uh, Matthew, you talk about, um, so let's take it, we're going to take it up a level because you did so in this book, it's mm-hmm. all throughout, but another theme you say that's translatable into mystical language is that of illumination, and that that's... Um, really important the idea that we are illuminated and enlightened that light in us increases and paradoxically so as we go more deeply into the dark and we had a different way with ramdas of of saying something similar about suffering is mm. not to be a victim it's mm. a way of transformation which is in all the mystical literature of any uh, of any of the great traditions um and uh, yeah, talk a, a little bit about that and the illumination uh, that uh, comes at the end of the, as you call it, bottoming out in the darkness experience. Mm. Yes, well, in in the Western church, we call that the via negativa. So the via positiva mm. is the experience of awe and wonder and gratitude, and then the negativa is stillness, is letting go of all input and so forth. So the being getting into the solitude. And and um, and you know, being ho- held by that, and like the psalm says, "Be still and know that I am God." So that's stillness. But the other side of the view negativa is, of course, the suffering and, and grief and loss and letting go. And um, like you say, it's not about manufacturing suffering, and that's why I'm pretty outspoken about mortification and asceticism. That says, yeah. Like my striker says, um, asceticism is of no great importance. It creates a bigger ego rather than a lesser ego. Yeah. So um, that's what the Buddha was all about: busting all those ascetics, right? Exactly right. The middle, the middle way, yeah. and um, and so was Dominic and 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 Eckhart and Aquinas. Yeah, and um, but but these deep things do happen to us, like you alluded to. You know, um. I don't know if you know the work of Father B. Griffiths, who lived in India for yes. years and had an ashram there. But he has a marvelous uh, observation. He says that um, despair can be a yoga. Despair can be a mm-hmm. yoga. Some people do not experience spirit or God or what you want to call it until they undergo a very deep 
mm. uh, crash and so forth. And, and that makes me think, for example, of many people I know in AA and so forth who, who tell me exactly that. Their first experience of spirit, first they had a crash. And, and so that breakthrough, Maestro has a great phrase. He says, um, if you want the kernel, you must break the shell. And so um, the breakdown often precedes breakthrough. And, and he also said, he said, I once had a dream, even though a man, I dreamt I was pregnant, pregnant with nothingness. Oh. Out of this nothingness, God was born. I think that's just a, a marvelous story yeah. of how the, the breakthrough is like birth, dying and being born again. And out of the birth, something really big happens that we're, we're given birth to God again. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's true. We're, we're like a new being. And uh, so that's the link between the via negative and the via creative. So it's creativity that comes next. That's the resurrection. That's the new, the new birth. And we, we bring a new being into the world when we go through these transformations, as you say. And, um, you know, and now I, of course, look at our species. Can our species, which is going through so much crash at this time, not just the awful war in Ukraine, but the ecological crisis and the the gender crisis and so much else can can these actually be moments of transformation for us as a species so that we can be um born into a well evolve into the next stage when i look at human history i think well it's it's something (laughs) but it's it's kind of adolescent right up to now and we can't afford to be adolescents anymore we, we've got this responsibility for the rest of creation yeah. and for our ancestors to come and uh we got to grow up fast and i'm hoping that maybe even the horrors of this current war may make us grow up finally uh when we see how awful war is yeah. and um and and then the whole role of the religious tradition so as you say, you get to their essence and they all have something to bring to the table about the important questions of life, like suffering, like transformation, like compassion, like creativity. What, what are we going to use our creativity for? Do we need more weapons, uh, more nuclear missiles, or you know, do we need to reinvent how we do education and religion and mm. politics and economics in order that the earth can survive? Yeah, I like that, Matthew. We, we got to grow up, you know, it's, it's, uh, I see it in myself and, and, you know, thank God for, uh, mindfulness practices and so on. Mm-hmm. And you can see this and let it burn in the light basically mm-hmm. of, you know, you got to grow up. You cannot just turn to the whims of, of one, uh, both desire and rejection of mm-hmm. what is uncomfortable. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. That, that's a good uh, statement. You also say a lot of our addictions are efforts to intervene with the darkness that's happening. Ain't that so? Mm-hmm. But the mystical traditions would all say there's something deep to be learned by making the journey into the darkness, which you just described. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, really great. You know, um, you you uh, have a, a part of the book around the creation mystics so mentioning and telling the story of a few of them and um now i know of hildegard of bingen who is as you put it a feminist mystic and eco prophet i love that uh, century. yeah yeah right <laughs> exactly 
And yeah, no, some of the things that she says from back then are, I really are mind blowing in terms of where we are now and what we're facing and, and all of it. Uh, and, and, you know, people have really great turn of phrases, right? Different. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's uh, hers in particular that got me was she, she pictured our life's journey as a struggle to quote unquote, set up our tent of wisdom. Yeah. Really, that's fantastic. Yeah, you know? she paints a picture of it. Yeah. And she oh, talks yeah. about original wisdom. You know, I talked mm. about original sin and got our original blessing and kind of trouble. But she uses the phrase original wisdom. We're born with this tent of wisdom, but we're so small, she says. We're so tiny that it's all folded up. And so life's journey is setting up this tent. And she has a, a painting of all the struggles you make in setting up the tent, you know, that you're mm. fighting these demons of all kinds. And uh, but then at the end of the journey, at the end of her series of paintings, um, the tent is set up and it's glowing. It's glowing and it's gold. It's that duck size, that glory that we all carry within us, that that radiance and that spark of, of fire, spark of the soul. Mm. And uh, so uh, she's just full of ideas. And she says, you know, about ecology, she says, the earth must not be injured. The earth must not be destroyed. It is the mother of all seeds and of all life. And um, she goes on about that. She talks about the, the web of creation to which we belong. We're part of a web. And, you know, a web is, is a very flexible thing, but it's also strong. And she says, if humans in our greed um, uh, break that web, uh, she says, God will allow creation to punish humanity. So it's not God sending us to hell. It's humans sending us to hell. We will create a hell, such as yeah. is happening literally in Ukraine today, but, yeah. but which will happen if climate change, you know, continues on the path that it is. Uh, we will create our own hell. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, like you say, that's pretty stunning and intuitive language from 800 years ago (laughs) i mean big time stuff big time yeah uh can i just i want to quote her i mean please do she's just (laughs) you know and this uh, you've done i think what several books on i have done three books on her Uh and and one of them has some of the paintings and so on exactly the first one is called illuminations because that's her name you like light that Mm. was her name for um her paintings because they came to her in visions and, and she said, living light came to me in visions and spoke to me. And then she would paint these. Mm. Then she would do like commentary on the painting. Um, yeah, beautiful. So that was my first book on her. And then um, my most recent was done when I, when I heard in January, I heard that the Vatican was going to canonize her a saint finally and declare her doctor of the church. But I didn't trust the Vatican to do a very good job of telling the story. So I had to find a publisher uh, in nine months to find a publisher and write a book <laughs> and get it out before the Vatican did their thing. Oh, and and uh, I was able to do that. And I wow. mean, I've been teaching it for years, so there's plenty of content. But the hard thing was finding a publisher who would rush a book out. Yeah, but yeah. we got it done. I found a oh. woman publisher in Vancouver who did it. And oh. she had never heard of Hildegard. But when I, she told me later, mentioned later, after I, I told her about Hildegard, she said for three nights, she was on the ceiling of her bedroom, so excited about this woman she'd never heard of before. Oh, so yeah. that was kind of fun. To yeah, that's great. Uh, by the publisher. way, <laughs> yeah, right. 
<clears throat> Everybody, of course, will link up this uh, these books uh, in the show notes uh, on, <laughs> on on the uh, page. Uh, so, uh, but how how did she do this, Matthew? Being from that time of of history as a woman yeah. and making audacious yes. audacious rather statements. Yeah. Huh? Well, one thing is the the abbesses, like the abbots in her day, were, were very um, uh, powerful people because. Um, they owned a lot of land and the feudal system was land-based. It wasn't about cash. It was about land mm. and, and all this, but also she grew up in a, in a um, Celtic monastery in Germany, but the Celts settled into Germany and it was bi-gender, bisexual. Uh, but after many years there, she got, which just, Oh, well, after her first book, she got very famous and oh, really? uh, women came to study with her. So she, the women were kind of flooding the monastery and the men wouldn't move over and make room for the women. So she up and left with all her nuns. She left and started her own monastery. And, and the, the men were pretty pissed off. In fact, we have a letter from the abbot saying, come back, come back and bring the dowries with you. Because back then nuns had to have dowries. And and. Hildegard wrote him, and her letter was all about justice and injustice. So she felt they were badly treated. So then she had this freedom. She was running her own show now. And um, and so she, and then because of her visions and stuff, and because that first book was became so famous, it was endorsed by St. Bernard, who was a contemporary of hers, and also a Benedictine. And, um, and then the Pope gave it a good score. Oh. Back then, if the Pope gave you a good score, you know, you're, you're, in. you're in. In my day, I got kind of notorious because I was condemned by the Pope. So, you know, history evolves. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, um, yeah, she, and she was just a powerful woman in her own. And people were afraid of her because she said these are visions from God. And and I think the men were genuinely concerned they, they might have been. And uh, they didn't want to be on the wrong side yeah, of yeah. history. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my. That's uh, so great. But she was a genius in music. She's absolute genius. She wrote the first opera. It's 300 years older than any other opera in the West. And it's, really? Oh, yeah. It's this is, music. by the way, you know, around 1100 uh, AD. Yeah, she did. This is not. 12th century. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it was a very important century because feudalism was breaking down and uh, Europe was warming up, bigger families, the, the young didn't have jobs. So they went to the towns and towns over grew, grew up overnight in being cities. And then uh, monasticism wasn't getting the job done uh, because now the young people were in the cities and they fled to the cities because they couldn't get work. So, um, you know, the whole power structure was melting before their eyes. And then in steps this woman um, and, um, uh, you know, with, as you say, a very, well, I'd say a very Celtic view of the world that was very mm. um, nature-based and uh, creation-centered. And, uh, of course, music and creativity was at the heart of it. She was a healer. Um, she wrote a whole book on on healing. And there's a, a center, a clinic in Germany, southern Germany today, using her medicines entirely, not anything else, just really? her medicines for healing. Oh, yeah. Wow. It's so, I, so I, cool. she, was, she was truly young. So here's uh, Matthew quoting uh, her in the book. I heard a voice speaking to me. Mm. The young woman whom you see is love. 
she has her tent in eternity. It was love which was the source of this creation in the beginning when God said, let it be. And it was. As through, though in the blinking of an eye, the whole creation was formed through love. The young woman is radiant in such a clear lightning-like brilliance of countenance that you can't fully look at her. She holds the sun and moon in her right hand and embraces them tenderly. The whole of creation calls this maiden lady, for it was from her that all of creation proceeded since love was the first. She made everything. Love was in eternity and brought forth in the beginning of all holiness, all creatures without any admixture of evil. Adam and Eve as well were produced by love from the pure nature of the earth. If that's not the most, if, if, uh, I mean, that turns everything, you know, okay, let's have this be what is for us now, not patriarchy. Exactly. Uh, if that's the original blessing, I've never, I don't know what it yeah, is. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And they made her back to the church. The last chapter of my latest book on her is, is entitled something like this, is Hildegard being on a Trojan horse in the Vatican. Because they've brought her in, not just a saint, but a doctor of the church. And she's a feminist, as you say. It's a new beginning. It's a new beginning, not just for religion, but really for, for consciousness. And as you say, this ain't patriarchy. What you just read is not patriarchy. No. This, this is a new story. This is not Putin talking. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, you got it. This is this is dynamite. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, so I'm, I'm I'm so glad you chose that path. You chose very well. That that's the most important. Yeah, no, that's the key to everything, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. Now the other, another mystic, of course, that you you've already quoted, and is Meister Eckhart. And um, so now again, I went to India, Matthew. I had no idea of. I went to a parochial Jewish school. I learned half Hebrew and half my geography in Hebrew. Which I didn't speak. Okay, I was so I was really wrecked right away in terms of education from what happened to me, and um, you know, and my teacher was in the camp. I remember the you know the uh, tattoo on his forearm, mm. and he was obviously you know had PTSD because he mm. was uh, really really in yeah. bad shape. Mm. So he would say literally that Christ was bad. I don't even know that. Uh, all I knew about Christ was because Montreal is a Roman Catholic, uh, Quebec is a Roman Catholic uh, oh, province, mm -hmm. and they had a beautiful basilica in the middle of it on the top of the mount, and we used to go there to find out what were the bad movies when we were teenagers because they would report. <laughs> you went there. You yeah, that's, that. So that was my extent that's, of it all. If you could imagine something funny. as crazy as that. <laughs> I end up in India, and Maharaji looks at me and goes, Neem Karoli Baba, where's your cross? I'm like, I'm thinking I'm Jewish. What cross? <laughs> and I got introduced. And I the there's a famous story when I asked him how to meditate, figuring you meet a guru, you ask him how to meditate. I mean, it makes sense, right? So Matthew, he said to me, meditate like Christ. When he was on the Christ, cross, he was lost in love with every sentient being. And I'm like, okay, that's way over. <laughs> my head. Ramdas wasn't there then, but he came the next day and I said, Ramdas, 
at least ask him how how did Christ meditate, which he did. And then uh, Neem Karoli Baba just went inside, closed his eyes, and just went out there. And and then tears just started coming. And he wow. just kept saying, you don't understand. You don't understand. He was lost in love with every sentient being. He, mm. he was only interested in serving everyone. Mm. You don't understand. He never died. That's what he said. He wow. never died. He never wow. died. And we all, it was me, Ramdas, Krishnas, who you may know, and a couple other people. And we were so stunned by this moment. And that was the end of uh, any ecumenical kind of (laughs) approach. I mean, it was, it really was. So that I got introduced. Yeah. 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 Changed my entire life, obviously. So, um, yeah, Christ. Yeah. Consciousness was yeah. uh, sat there in front. So we used to read Meister Eckhart in wow. those days, right? So this is what, early 70s? Early 70s. And we'd sit around and talk about him, and mm. we loved Meister Eckhart. Oh, you know? oh, I wish yeah. I had run yeah. into uh, Hildegard. <laughs> <laughs> that too, but, yeah. yeah. They're a yeah. great combination. It was Eckhart who led me to Hildegard, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I never heard of Hildegard. Yeah. Hildegard, I, 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 I know. I was reading through... Eckhart, I said, there's a, there's a female voice in here someplace. Yeah. And so I went hunting. And then I, and oh, I, you did? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I I only know, I knew of her or know of her through uh, Mirabai Star, our mutual friend. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Mirabai has come and taught at retreats around the mystics and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's mm-hmm. absolutely wonderful. Um, so, yeah, Meister Eckhart. Well, we are we're getting close to the end here, and I know you you've got. Uh, c- c- boy, you are a busy man. <laughs> All right. Well, this, you've been this doing this for is... a long time, and I really want to thank you for yeah. everything that you've done and these books that you've put out and the introduction to the reality of spirituality mm-hmm. and and not what we've been you know shoveled what's been shoveled mm-hmm. into us and which many of us had such a hard time of. But then the suffering of that hard time led us, okay, what, what is it? What, where, there must be something that's not this, you know, polarity of judgmental bullshit that, that's been handed down to it. And so it led us to the East, um, where, and you have this chapter, uh, it's around prophecy and compassion and awakening the prophet. And you described the, what that is. And I'm reading this, um, and I'm like, shit, I actually, you know, I got to be in presence of somebody who embodied this. Mm. You know, how fortunate. And But maybe just a little something about the prophet. The heartfelt concern about the loved ones of God who suffer needlessly. Mm. Beautiful turn of phrase. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> well, I really honor your journey. And I think it's one of the, the hope, signs of hope in our in our generation in our time that um, people like yourself have chosen a journey to hunt and find and um, and we, we find these things in in various traditions and um, one of the things about Eckhart that's amazing is that the Buddhists claim him. I, in my most recent book on him, I put him in a room with someone 
each chapter. So the first room is Rabbi Heschel, so the, the Jewish uh-huh. yeah. tradition. But then um, Thich Nhat Hanh and the Buddhist tradition, but Kumar Swami in the Hindu tradition. Mm. He says that reading Eckhart is like reading the Upanishads. There are whole sentences in Eckhart that mm. feel like they've been translated from Sanskrit, he says. And Kumar Swami, uh, you know, was was fluent in 36 languages. I mean, I mean, talk about Hindu scholarship or whatever. I mean, that kind of blows wow. my mind. That's know? insane. Okay, that's it's amazing. insane, absolutely. Yeah. And um uh and the Sufis claim him as uh-huh. a as a Sufi. So it's really astounding how ecumenical he was in the 14th century. No wonder he got condemned by the Pope a week mm-hmm. after he died. He was so ahead of his time. But I'm so glad that you were exposed to him early because he Yeah, was very a... early. Yeah, no. And, and he converted and, uh... Thomas Merton. Go ahead. Oh, really? Yeah, in 1958, it was Suzuki, um, D.T. Suzuki, yeah. North American, teach then. Um, he told Merton, read your one Zen thinker of the West, Meister Eckhart. And Merton <laughs> said, but he did condemn by the church. Suzuki said, well, I can't help that, can I? So Merton's devoted one year to reading Eckhart and Zen poetry, and it wow. flipped him. He changed from being a dualistic, romantic, guilt-ridden, Augustinian kind of monk, which he was from 1940 in the monastery to 1958, to being this prophetic Christian who ended up writing about war and peace and, of course, ecumenism and, and traveling to Asia and, of course, uh, drinking in the um, the wisdom of the East and then uh, dying uh, suddenly in uh, Bangkok. Mm. So, um, and he was writing in his Asian journal, his last writings, Eckhart is my lifeboat, Eckhart is my lifeboat. Oh, really? Wow. And his second last book is all about Suzuki and Eckhart. It's called The Zen, Zen and the Bird of appetite zen and the birds of appetite hmm. so Eckhart was a huge person in in, in Merton's life and i write a lot about that in my book in yeah but the so, influence Eckhart has had has been great he's he influenced Karl marx according to ernst block the marxist philosopher oh really and jung says i got the key to the unconscious from meister Eckhart. yeah that. i saw that i read that yeah that's pretty amazing it right is there amazing. and then you yeah. love Eckhart. yeah yeah we should do a Okay, I'm, I'll try and grab you for another podcast I'm just on Meister Kevin. Eckhart. That you know, would be fun. Bring in, you know, yeah, maybe I'd we'll have a panel or something. Your, how he touched you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I want to leave with this. Uh, I think it's it's uh, how you talk about Meister Eckhart develops a rich theology of compassion, both in the mystical and prophetic dimensions. Um, I compassion is world energy source. Is this from Meister Eckhart or is this you? I'm not sure. Compassion is everywhere. Compassion is the world's richest energy source. Now that the world is a global village, we need compassion more than ever. Not for altruism's sake, nor for philosophy's sake or theology's sake, but for survival's sake. Mm. Yeah, that's me. But that's you. Well, uh, yeah, no, but uh, fantastic, mm. absolutely fantastic. Mm. That is, I mean, uh, that's a good way to uh, close a podcast. I'll tell you that it is. <laughs> it's I so perfect. So. Anyway, yeah. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, thank you, thank you, everybody. This is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to Be Here Network Now Network dot com and uh, tune in to the 
phenomenal uh, array of thought leaders and teachers, many who are mutual friends here that uh, Matthew knows. And, um, and you will find all uh, in the show notes on this show, you will find all of the links to many books here that we have talked about. And, uh, you know, so it's a very rich thing. And again, thank you for, you know, providing this and being this for, 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 uh, for so long. It's quite wonderful. We will see you all next week on Mind Rolling. <laughs> 